0: amen good morning happy easter two cities church all right guys if you're new welcome we're the church for anybody but we're not the church for everybody no matter why you're here where you came from who invited you i want to let you know we we're glad that you're here and here's the message of easter not just, not just that jesus lived but that jesus lives And the story of Sarah, we hope, will be your story where you meet Jesus and are made into his disciples. But listen, I know it's Easter, okay? I know that at Easter, we're all over the spiritual map in here, right? We've got, uh, you know, some of you, maybe many of you, you would say you're a serious Christian and you've been listening to your Spotify playlist this week, hoping Donovan was going to sing one of those songs, okay? Is that you? That's okay. Others of you, you're not a Christian. I know you're not a Christian. You know you're not a Christian. The person who brought you knows you're not a Christian. And listen, here's what I want to tell you. I used to be where you were. I didn't become a Christian until I was 16 years old. So here's what this means. If you're here today and you're in church and you're not a Christian, one day you could be a pastor. (laughs) Something to pray about, okay? (laughs) Like this isn't very encouraging. now, some of you some of you are unchurched here's what unchurched means unchurched just means we're glad you're here you, you never go into a church building why would you right if it's a funeral if it's a wedding if it's easter if it's christmas those are the only options you're coming into a building but when you pulled up here you pulled up and you, you were thinking bells and smells and steeples and pews and you're like okay i can do this Crate and barrel crate and barrel for an hour i can do this this is what it looks like yeah uh others of you you're unchurched okay un or sorry dechurched. Dechurched means that you had a bad experience with church at some point you got hurt you got busy uh, maybe COVID happened to you. You didn't really want to come today because if you've had some bad experiences, you offered to guard the Easter baskets, okay? And, and, and not come, okay? We're glad that you're here. Some of you are me-churched. Me-churched means that you've been in church your whole life, but you've thought it's about you and you haven't realized it's all about Jesus. Now, here's what I know about all of us, no matter your seeker, skeptic, atheist, agnostic, no matter who you are, we're all doing the same thing. We're all looking for life. Now, I don't mean life like NASA's looking for like life on Mars, okay? Not like, that kind of, not like biological life. I mean like life life. You might use words like fulfillment and satisfaction and joy and peace and sig- success and significance. I mean, we use a lot of different words, but we're all looking for life, right? What is this whole bucket list thing that came out like 20 years ago, 30 years ago? Everyone starts talking about their bucket list. That's what you want to do. The life you want to experience before you die, right? Now, we look for life in all different kinds of places, right? Some of us, we look for life. We hate to admit it to ourselves, right? And church is nowhere to be honest, but let's just be honest for a second here, okay? Uh, we, we look for life in superficial things. We care way too much about what other people think about us, and it shows up in social media. I hate to tell you on Easter Sunday that I still care way too much about how many views my sermons get. What's wrong with me? I, we care too much about the goofy shows we watch. Was anyone else just way too excited about Ted Lasso season three? Thank both of you. Yes, that's right, <laughs> guys. We care too much about our goofy hobbies. Okay, I played golf in high school, and I'm still trying to get back down to a single-digit handicap. And if you are a member at a country club, I would like to talk to you after service. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding, well, guys. Sometimes we find life in superficial things. Sometimes we find life in sinful things. You're like, this is going to get awkward. Yeah, yeah. Just like, in other words, we we, we there are things that we're ashamed of that we secretly find life in. That's why we do them, that's why we lie about them, that's why we keep hiding them, that's why we keep going back to them. Sometimes they started out as something that was just an enjoyment but it became enslavement, right? You didn't know that you were gonna begin to work your whole weekend and your whole life around your alcohol consumption, but that can happen. And all of a sudden you hate to admit that's where you find life or pornography. What I've noticed is that even rappers who rap about all their sexual activities, They never rap and boast and brag about pornography. Why? Because they know it's not the heroic path. They know it's inherently shameful. And they're embarrassed that that's where they try to find life. Some of us try to find life in superficial things. Some of us try to find life in sinful things. Some of us try to find life in spiritual things. That was Sarah's story. You hear her? She went from sinful drug use and all this kind of stuff she shares about to going into meditation and mindfulness and yoga and crystals and we are, the, we are the generation that says, you've heard this, right? I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Which means I would like to be spiritual in a selfish way. That's what that means, that's good for. Well, what the Bible teaches is that not all spirituality is the same. Something is unique about Christ, uh, Christians in Christianity. At the center of Christianity isn't a program, it's not principles, it's not a philosophy, it's not a place. At the center of Christianity is a person in what he did. And if you'll type to, turn to, if you've got your Bible, or it'll be on the screen, Luke 24 we're gonna see the main message of Christianity is Jesus is alive and he gives life. That's the message of the resurrection. That's the message of the empty tomb. That's the message of Easter. And if you'll turn with me to verse one of chapter 24, we'll dive right in. It says this, but on the first day of the week at early dawn. So back then they didn't name days, they numbered them. So, we do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, yell at you all that. You go. They just did first day, second day, third day, right? So, kids were always asking, is it fifth day yet, right? Is it Friday yet? You know what I mean? that, That's kind of what would happen. And so, it says first day of the week. Now, to understand the first day of the week, which is Sunday, which is the day we celebrate, it's one of the reasons why Christians, what well, is the reason why Christians worship on Sunday. It was the day on which Jesus rose. But to understand the first day of the week, you have to understand what happened the previous week. So, Jesus, he had a ministry for three and a half years of teaching, preaching, healing ministry. And he had 12 best friends. In fact, some people say the greatest miracle Jesus did was be a guy in his 30s with 12 close friends, okay? Uh, you're like, I don't know any of those. Yeah, um, so, so he has these 12 close friends. One denies him, one betrays him. The other 10 abandon him. And then he faces an unjust trial. He's condemned. This all happens in one week. He's condemned by the religious and the political. They were kind of overtwined, but the religious and political leaders of his day, he faces an unjust trial and then he's killed in front of his mom. And that's a bad week. And he dies uh, the most pain. So the, so the word excruciating literally means from the cross. So Jesus dies the most, to this day, we know this is the most painful way you can die. Jesus died it. So then he's he dies, they put him in the tomb. And then in verse one, it says, they go to look for him. Look at me in verse one. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, that's between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. They, we'll talk about who they is, or they are. Uh, they went to the tomb taking spices they had Prepared. Okay, so the they is women, and it's important to say that because in all four accounts of the Gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the final people at the cross and the first people at the tomb are women. You go, well, why is that important? Well, think about this. If you're Luke or John or Mark or Matthew, the guys writing the accounts, you are trying to write this account because you want to explain the legitimacy of the empty tomb. Here's the problem why would you put women as the first ones at the tomb if you were going to make up a story that was going to try to legitimize the empty tomb? Because back then, women couldn't testify in court, and their words didn't matter, and they, they, their testimony couldn't be trusted. That's how the culture viewed them. So why did he put women at the tomb? Answer, because they really were there. <laughs> I want you to know something. Maybe you're just checking out Christianity, and you've thought, Christianity, is it based on like fable and fiction and fairy tale and myth and speculation? And you know? No, it's based on historical events and historical facts. So the reason we have women at the, at the tomb is because that's who was at the tomb that morning. It looks, look what it says they were taking, spices, okay? That's because they didn't have essential oils back then, okay? This is why they took spices. Some of you go, oh, this makes sense. Okay, yeah. Um, so the spices, here's, here's what I love. The Bible is at many things. The Bible is historical, right? So it's telling us the historical facts, events, and the Bible is honest. Those are both important. The Bible's historical, the Bible's honest. It's telling us that, hey, these women were in a mindset of mourning, Uh, Their hearts were sad. They were grieving. The the reason they brought spices is because they were expecting to find the dead body of Jesus. Why do you go back to the grave or the tomb of those you love? This is what humanity has always done. The reason that the tomb or the grave is so meaningful to people is it's the last place of human contact with the body. So to this day, people go back to graves to pray over them, to talk, to leave flowers, to to remember birthdays, all of that kind of stuff. And so that's exactly what's happening here. They're going back to the grave and they're surprised at what they see. Look at verse two. Here's what what we're told. And they found the stone, this is a massive stone, rolled away from the tomb. Here it is, verse three. But they went in and they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So there are kind of two main symbols of Christianity. If you wanna like over in part of my job on Easter is just to make things as simple as possible. There are two main symbols in Christianity, the bloody cross and the empty tomb. One is a symbol of death. One is a symbol of life. And what we see here is in verse three, they discovered the empty tomb. They were not expecting this. They were expecting to find a dead Jesus in the tomb. They find nothing instead, which leads to, look at verse four. This is super important. And they were perplexed about this. And sorry, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men, and we were told in another account, they're actually angels in human form, stood by them in dazzling apparel. So they're perplexed. Here's what this means. The first disciples were emotionally affected by the empty tomb. I want to ask you something, it may be so simple. You may be like, why you know, why is he asking us this? Have you ever been emotionally affected by either the bloody cross or the empty tomb of Jesus? Because I think it's I think it's possible, maybe even very probable, that you were able to grow up in the southeast, if you grew up here, or you're able to grow up in a church and you're able to be a part of a maybe even a Christian home and you had Christian parents. And you know all the right answers, but you don't feel anything. Like, I'm worried about my kids. My kids are, I mean, they're good. They're good kids. I love them. But they're 11, they're 9, and they're 6, and they know every answer to every basic Bible. I mean, because they're in kids' ministry, like, three or four services, right? More goldfish, more gospel. I mean, they're just, like, they're just in there. They're in there all the time. And they love their teachers, and they love their friends, and they know all the answers. And I'm, like, and, and I'm always looking for, like, but do you feel the Jesus died for my sins is that's easy to recite. The like I I mean that's a, I'm getting emotional talking about God would send His son to die. Oh yeah, the tomb is empty. It's easy to talk about the idea that oh my gosh Jesus rose from the dead and there's hope for me and there's life on the other side of death. I mean there's a different experience. They were perplexed. Perplexed means confused. It's an emotional state of mind. It's it's confused. It's um, shocked, surprised, bewildered. They're asking two questions. Where is Jesus and what does this mean for me? Those are the questions that they're asking. Where is Jesus? Here's the theological and true biblical answer. God raised him from the dead. So we don't talk enough, and sorry about that. We don't talk enough, probably even here at Two Cities, enough about the importance of the resurrection. We talk a lot about the cross. We sing songs about the cross. We don't talk about the resurrection. The resurrection is God's way, when God raised Jesus from the dead, here's what he's saying. I accept what Jesus did For you. And I am satisfied with his death in your place. And here's why that's important. Here's the way I think about it. This is a little cheesy illustration, but I hope most of you have iPhones, okay? Not Android users. If you're an Android user, welcome. Welcome. Church for anybody, not church for everybody. But um, (laughs) um, But here's what I love. And Android might have its own version of this, but I love the iPhone because when you text other people with the iPhone, right? You get the blue bubbles, not the green bubbles. um, When you send something, right? What happens when you send it? You get that beautiful thing underneath it that says delivered. And if they forget to turn the read receipt on or off, right? It says red at 238. It's like, I know it went through, and I know you saw it. By the way, that's what the resurrection is for God. The resurrection is God's read receipt. I've seen it, I've accepted it. So the question is: where is Jesus? He's alive. The other question is really important. What does the resurrection of Jesus mean for me? Here's what it means: your past can be forgiven, your present can have purpose. Your future can be secure. We are the anxious and depressed generation. There's lots of reasons for that that we can't get into in great detail. But a lot of people are depressed about their past and they're anxious about their future. Because you realize two things. I can't change the past. And that's a hard thing to realize because you've done things that you wish you didn't do and you had things done to you that wish weren't done. And people can get depressed about their past and people can get very anxious because they can't control their future. And Jesus comes in and says, I will forgive your past. I will cleanse your past. I can heal your past. I can redeem your past. And the future, I know what's going to happen, and you're ultimately headed home to heaven with me, and I'm going to give you purpose in the present. That's life. That's that's life summed up. So here's, here's basically, if I could summarize this whole message in one sentence, either the tomb is empty or Christianity is So what he's saying is if the tomb is empty, then forgiveness of sins is possible and the breaking of addiction is possible and the reconciling of relationships is possible and all of that. But you may not know this, the Bible criticizes or critiques, I should say, the Bible critiques itself. And here's what I mean by that. In 1 Corinthians 15, you can Google that later, but in 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle Paul says, here's what's true if the tomb is not empty. If Jesus is dead, here's what's true. And he said, it's not good, guys. He said, it means when you die, you disappear. And he says, it means that everybody that you've known and loved you'll ne- that dies, you'll never see them again. He just walks through the implications. This means there is no reconciliation of relationships. This means you're never getting healed. This means we live in an unjust world. And rights will not, wrongs will not be made right. And then it gets personal for me because then he goes, "Then every pastor is then a false teacher. And actually, it's he's leading people astray. Like we're basically like if if there's no if the tomb isn't empty, we should stop the service right now and I'll beat everybody else to lunch. And then he actually says at the very end, he says if the tomb is not empty, he said let's eat, drink, and be merry, which doesn't mean be a fraternity guy, okay? Because they're you know to, to eat too much and drink too much is a, if you ever meet a glutton or a drunkard, they're about as sad as anyone you'll ever meet. Here's what that means: when the Bible says eat, drink, and be merry, it means live a normal life. If Jesus isn't raised from the dead, your life should look like everybody else's life in America. But if Jesus is raised from the dead, your life should look very, very distinct and different, which is why verse five is so important. In verse five, something unique happens at Easter that I want to happen this morning for each of us, and it's that at Easter, God asks us a question. Isn't that interesting? Look at verse five. I'll show you this. Turn with me there. And as they were frightened, so that's a second emotional state, and they bowed their faces to the ground, The men said to them, here's the question, why do you seek the living among the dead? I find it amazing that at the empty tomb on Easter morning, and let's just do it here again today, God asks us a question, which is very interesting because we don't really like when God asks us questions. We like to ask God questions. Have you noticed that? They said somewhere around the 19th or the 20th century, we did what the British call, we put God on the dock. We said, God, hold on, we'll be the lawyers, we'll be the attorneys. You get on the witness stand. We've got a lot, a lot of questions for you. Now, why do people ask God questions? Well, there's two main reasons people ask God questions. One is really good. People ask God questions because they're they're in pain. And life's really, really hard. And it's like, man, why did my brother die of cancer? Right? Why do good things, why do bad things happen to good people? Why is there injustice in the world? we ask these questions in a very personal, painful way? That's okay. The psalms do that. The psalms ask a lot of questions. But sometimes, do you know this? Sometimes people ask questions so that they can be in control. Sometimes people ask questions so that you won't ask them any questions. Because this is like business 101 and communication 101 and sales 101. If I get to ask the questions, then I get to steer and start the conversation. Like, have you ever been out with someone before? And I have found the more insecure a person is, the more questions they ask when you go to lunch with them or because. An insecure person does not want you to ask. That's why they seem so friendly. Because they want to ask a ton of questions and they are so afraid that if they stop asking a question for a moment, you might ask them a question. They might ask you, however I said it, (laughs) they might get asked a question and it might be revealed what they don't know. The second reason, or the, the first reason is we're in pain. The second reason is we want to keep God at a distance. But what I love here is that God asks us a question. Now, this is, God has been doing this for a long time. Remember when Adam and Eve, if you know the story, Adam hides behind the bushes after he sins and God says, Adam, where are you? It's not that God didn't know where Adam was. It's that Adam didn't know where Adam was. I don't know if you've ever been asked just like the right question by the right person at the right time. I've had this happen to me a couple of times, right? Like somebody asks you like the right question. You're like, you're struggling in your marriage or something. And they just ask like the right question. It feels like at the time maybe the worst question the wrong question you don't want to ask right they just ask you the right question about your job or your finances they ask you the right question about your kid you'll know that this happens because like you'll you'll usually involuntarily cry it's like it's like I sunk your battleship you know b12 it's like I just it's just like I hit <laughs> I hit just the right you know we all know what that feels like I've done I've I've had that done to me I've done that to, I've not even tried to do that I just you, you notice something? Hey, I saw you were fighting in the parking lot. Is everything okay in your marriage? B12, sunk the battleship. No. In fact, we fight all the time. It's interesting. God asks us questions because there's certain things we don't know. So this is an interesting story. There's a This is a true story. There's a lady, she gave this TED Talk. And the TED Talk was on being wrong. And she was really smart. You know how these TED Talks are. They're all on YouTube, very famous. And she, 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 at this TED Talk, she uh, gets up, and she, the first thing she does to the audience about maybe room this size, she said, all right, guys, I want you to tell me what it's like to, to, uh, what it feels like to be wrong. And, you know, one person raises their hand. They said, it's, it's embarrassing. Another person raises their hand. You feel stupid. Another person raises their hand. You feel really vulnerable. Another person raises their hand and says, it's kind of scary. And she said, gotcha. That's not what it's like to be wrong you're explaining what you've what it's like to recognize you're wrong this is super please hear this this is super important she said this because being wrong and being right feel the exact same Whew, that's worth thinking about for like 5 years <laughs> being wrong and being right feel the same until someone asks you the right question or points out something you have been unwilling or unable to look at. And so what God graciously does on Easter is he asks us a question. Here's the question. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Translation, why are you looking for life in places that lead to death? Why are you looking for the right things but in the wrong places or people? That's a great question. It's a great question to ask at Easter. You know, it's interesting. There was an article in Forbes years ago I think it was 2016, it was called Eight Things, something like this, it was called Eight Things People Want But Can't Find. And they had done this, they had interviewed all these people that were wealthy and successful and you know, we'd look at them and go, okay, across these domains, they've ex- they've excelled. And you know, whether it was money or status or family or power or whatever, and it was about the things they couldn't, the eight things they couldn't find. I won't go through them all, but like peace was one. That's interesting. They couldn't find it. Joy was one. Balance was one. Confidence was one. They were looking <laughs> for the right things, but they couldn't find them. They were looking for them in the wrong places. Let me let me tell you five areas today where I think Americans look for life that only leads to death. You know where I'm going to start on the first one. It's so obvious, right? Money. Okay? There's nothing wrong in and of itself with money. But why are we, why is the love of money such an issue in people's hearts? Why is money the number one, one competitor for God in the human heart. It's because money does the same thing God does. It makes lots of promises. That's what makes money powerful. That's what makes money influential. When I when I first started this church, I had an older pastor said, he said, you're going to have to talk to people about money a lot. I thought, I don't want to talk about it. And he said, yeah, I know you don't want to talk about money. And people don't want you to talk about money. He said, but you're going to talk about sexuality, right? I said, well, you got it. And he said, well, Actually, money's way more powerful in people's lives than sexuality. They don't even realize it. He said, so you got to talk about it. And it's hard because people want money for different things. It's like, why do people want money? Well, the answer is actually they want life. Okay? but that, you have to th- you have to, We have to be like more sophisticated about this and more nuanced than this than maybe we want to initially think about it. So basically, people want money for different reasons. Like I have a friend, very successful friend, makes a lot of money, drives a dumpy car. And I was, I was like having cognitive dissonance. I was like, why are you? I wouldn't let my daughter drive that car. Borderline unsafe. And uh, and I realized as I got to know him, oh, he grew up poor. He's a saver. He is a saver at all costs. The wor- His hell is not having enough money in the bank. And so he would rather store up tons of money. Just Some people are savers. Some people, they want money because they want approval. This is a lot of young men. A lot of men, they feel like I have to make X amount or else my dad was not going to respect me. I have to make a certain amount of money for my dad to think his son is successful. Some people want money because of comfort. What you'll find though is if you have money is you never have enough. Listen, they've done the studies. People, everybody thinks, try this out on yourself, everybody thinks rich people make twice what they make. Just take your salary and multiply it by two and that's what you think rich people make until you make that much. (laughs) And then you need twice that to feel like you're rich again until you get there. Money is a great servant, it's a terrible master. Here's what happens, here's how death happens with money. You think you own things, they start owning you. You're supposed to love people and use money, you start using people and loving money and it's subtle and it happens. And you wake up one day and the only thing you can see is the financial price of everything. I mean, I've seen guys like this, It's, it's all you can see is how, you can't see that your wife is dying and needs a break. No, you see the financial cost of everything. Second place we tend to look for life is in relationships and no wonder obviously God's relational we're relational our lives are only as good or bad as the relationships we're in and parents are only as happy as their least happy child as a general rule and you know and you have to ask again a deeper question and we're we're a shallow generation our soul has shrunk to the size of a TV sitcom that's what's happened to us okay So we don't ask deep questions anymore. Why do we want relationships? Because we want intimacy and we want acceptance, obviously. And it shows up when you're young, you want friends, and when you're in high school and you're in college, you start looking for the one. Or as we often think of it, the one, the one, the one, the one. The the Jerry Maguire lie. Who's that person who will passionately meet every one of my needs and will complete me? And any person who's married is like, Ugh, should we tell them? <laughs> <laughs> and then it's then we think kids are going to satisfy us, right? We we just think. And here's here's how relationships work. Okay, when you here's here's signs that you care too much and you're trying to find too much life in a relationship. Pure pressure is sign one. We all know this with our kids. It's like, oh man, trying to find way too much life in this relationship and he he or she is giving. I've known parents who've had to pull their kids out of a certain schools. It's like no. when you get older, you move from pure pressure to people pleasing. You know, you meet people like this all the time. They value this relationship so much. They're almost they almost worship this person. That'd be the biblical language for it. And the 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 worst version of this where it goes to is codependency. Second place we look is relationships. Third place we look is in our physical health and well-being, right? We are the yoga pants wearing, cycle bar moving, smoothie drinking generation, God help us, okay? What are we doing, right? We are just so obsessed with the external, we forgot about the internal. I hate to break it to me and to us. We're all going to get old and ugly, okay? Just... (laughs) right now I will get old and ugly okay yes we're gonna get wrinkly okay it's okay and, and it's just what here's what's happened we have completely lost any value for the soul so we became obsessed with the body obsessed. We're the first generation where mom wants to look like daughter instead of daughter wants to look like mom we're the first generation where dad wants to look like son instead of son wants to look like dad and you can nip it, and you can tuck it, and you can tan it, and I don't even know what else you do with it, okay? (laughs) Not helpful, okay? Here's what the Bible teaches. Across your life, if you're a Christian, your soul and your body move in different directions. Paul says, though, outwardly we're perishing, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. Today we value pretty and youth. The Bible values Old age, wisdom, and beauty. And this is why sometimes you'll see somebody in, I don't mean this in a weird way, I mean this in a biblical way, you'll see somebody who's 85 years old and you'll be like, she is beautiful. But it's the beauty of the soul. Fourth, political and social activism, right? This is, by the way, all these can be good of themselves. Money has its place, relationships have its place, physical health has its place, political social activism has its place. But uh, here's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing there's this obsession with uh, finding, we're we're, we're meaning makers. We want everything to be so fulfilling, right? This generation wants everything to be so fulfilling. They wanna be part of some cause, right? I mean, could you imagine talking to your grandfather, your great-grandfather and going, "Uh, hey, how fulfilling was your job? He'd be like, I worked at the railroad. I never even thought, your grandfather and great-grandfather never asked that question. But we are in this generation where we wanna make such an impact. And here's what I see. I see uh, most people who are obsessed with social activism are trying to focus on something out there so they don't have to deal with the death in here, right? Oh, yeah, you're going to fix the economy. Mm -hmm. You're going to fix the economy. Your personal financial budget is completely out of whack. You are unable to give, save, and spend appropriately in your little household, but you're going to fix the economy. But it makes people feel good. They're going to fix something out. You're going to do world peace. Your marriage is a mess. If you took three years and tried to staple back together all the relationships in your life and you learned how to forgive and you learned how to reconcile with, you know, your mother-in-law and your estranged brother, that would do the world a lot better than you trying to fix world peace. But the reason we want to focus on everything out there is so we don't uh, see all the death that's going on in here. I'd like to look at everybody else's problems so I don't have to deal with my own problems. Which leads to the fifth thing, which is pleasure. Just physical pleasure. I mean, order anything you want from Amazon and you get it in two days. I mean, it's just ubiquitous. Whatever you wanna look at, whatever you wanna watch, right? I constantly have people tell me all these great shows and TV shows to watch. I'm like, I don't have enough time. Does anyone else feel like that? Like, you gotta see the show. I I look at them like, there's seven seasons. With physical pleasure, we've forgotten completely about spiritual pleasure. You know, it's almost like it would be hard to explain to the average American what spiritual pleasure even is. But our physical pleasures are telling us we long for something deeper. This is why I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says, if I find in myself a desire from which nothing in this world can meet, maybe I was made for another uh, world. And you think about this. You know that we have problems with pleasure because this is why some of us get in trouble Because pleasure always wants more, right? Your appetites always say only two words, now and more. Those are your favorite words of your appetite, now and more. And so you find yourself, I need more of this, or I need a new novel version of this, and you find yourself searching the internet for hours, and you find yourself looking at things you never wanted to look at. This is why G.K. Chesterton, the famous Christian, he said, the man who knocks at the door of the brothel does not know it, but he's looking for God. Now, how do these things lead to death? Let's just talk about that for just a few minutes. Because we're pursuing these things, relationships, pleasure, activism. And, and, and But we are honest, they lead to death. Here's the number one way they lead to death. And you've seen this, or you've seen this in your friend's lives, or your dad's life, or your mom's life. Addiction, right? I mean, it's very hard to even admit to yourself when you're addicted to something. Again, like, I don't want to say I'm addicted. I like it. I have a compulsion toward it? No, you're addicted. And the biblical word for addiction is slavery. And uh, and nobody get you know, nobody gets addicted out of duty. I'm going to get addicted. It happens to us. This is why the Bible says that sin makes you guilty, dirty, and enslaved. Guilty so you need to be forgiven. Dirty so you need to be cleansed. Enslaved, so you need to be set free. Here's how you know you're in the downward death spiral of addiction. You create a positive feedback loop. Okay, classic example of this is somebody who drinks too much, they have a hangover. What's the quickest way? to immediately cure a hangover, to begin to drink again. So you, what you're sick with is now the cure to your sickness, do you see this? This is the person who feels bad about how much they eat, so they eat, to cover up feeling bad for how much they eat. This is the person who looks at pornography and feels so guilty and the only thing that makes them stop thinking about their guilt is look at porn until it's over and then they feel guilty again. This is the positive feedback loop and it's the spiral down to death. We are an addicted generation and we are in anxious generation, right? So we've got all these mental problems today. Uh, again, I'm be careful here. Obviously, we, we believe in going to the doctor. We believe in taking pills. We believe in going to therapy. Hear me put all these airbags around it, okay? Um, we believe that people can have broken brains, just like you have broken arms. Or, okay, We can have a broken brain. We live in a, a sinful, fallen world. But here's what I think it's helpful to know. Some anxiety and depression is uh, medical, and some anxiety and depression is moral. And, pe- you know, I don't know where else you're going to hear this. I mean, maybe hopefully another church, but you will not hear this in the culture. That sometimes anxiety and depression is medical. See your doctor, take a pill, all that. Sometimes it's moral. Like sometimes you have to, when you counsel people, if you know, you got to go, okay, is there anything that you'd like to confess? You're depressed. Is there anything you want to confess? Because sometimes people are depressed and they feel guilty. This is going to be surprising to you because they're guilty. And we wanna just put that category. No, 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 there's real guilt. Sometimes people are anxious because of things they've done. Guys, we have a conscience, okay? I mean, by the way, all I do when I preach is I preach to your conscience. That's all I'm doing the whole time. I'm talking to your conscience. Everybody has a conscience and your conscience, it's either a feeling or a voice and it tells you when you're doing things wrong. And there are massive effects. No one teaches you this in high school. There are massive effects of going against your conscience for a decade we don't even know what all the effects are. Of keep telling yourself, this is okay, this is okay, this is, I'm okay, I'm okay, nothing's wrong, nothing's wrong. And we wake up a decade later and we've got all these problems that feel a lot like we're dying on the inside. Third way that it leads to death is relationships. The clearest synonym or euphemism for death is separation. When you die, your body is separated from your soul. Uh, when someone dies, they're separated from you. that's what you feel. If anyone never dies, you'll immediately have this feeling. they're gone. You just it's the best word for death is separation. What you'll often see is people in pursuit of life in some area. It could be a good thing that becomes a God thing. It could be a sinful habit. They will begin to experience separation and distance from the people that they love the most. And they'll be creating it often in many situations. There's grace for all this, but if you've ever talked to somebody who's been through a terrible divorce, I've heard divorce, I've heard divorce, if you've never been through one, I've heard divorce summarized as the exact same thing as having 4 years of non-terminal cancer. It's the same emotional, physical experience on your body as having non-terminal cancer for 4 years. Because it is the ripping apart of your life. It is the fracturing of your life. Or if you've ever talked to somebody who's in their 50s or 60s and they don't have a good relationship with their kids and it's their fault, and they look back on decisions they made for multiple decades that created distance because they had to pursue life in some goofy area, it's pretty close to feeling like death. You guys are like, this is a horrible Easter message. (laughs) I'm never coming back here again. There is hope. Jesus loves to save those who are addicted and free them. Jesus loves to bring peace to the anxious. Jesus loves to restore relationships. Jesus loves to show people that they've been looking for life in all the wrong places and He'd like to give them life. Let me show you how this works. Turn with me to verse 6. Verse 6 says this He is not here. This was after they asked the question He, Jesus, is not here, but He has risen. Remember how he told you when he was in Galilee, and here's the key verse, verse seven, that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Verse eight, and they remembered his words. So I love this after, and this is, by the way, Christianity is good news, bad news, good news. This is how we always preach here. Good news, God loves you and made you. Bad news, you're sinful (laughs) and you've messed it up and you can't get yourself out of it. Good news, Jesus loves to save you and work in your life. Okay, that's how it works. Good news, bad news, good news. Um, so we just spent a lot of time in bad news, sorry. So here's some good news. It's that we, the place we find life is in the death of Christ. And I know that's the upside down, inside out nature of Christianity. And I can't explain it to you. I mean, I'll try to for a minute. You have to have that experience yourself. Because the, the, the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is what do you see when you look at the cross? The non-Christian just sees a guy, a Galilean peasant dying on the cross, a painful death, maybe as an example. That's the human perspective. But can you look at the cross and see life? In other words, I see hope, I see forgiveness, I see reconciliation with God. I can tell you, I've seen both. I've been on both sides of it. Some of you know this, I'm a recovering Catholic, okay? If you're here and you're Catholic, you can call me Father Kyle afterwards, it's okay, okay? So I, I grew up as a nominal Catholic. We went on and off uh, less as I got older. But I remember, if you ever go to a Catholic church, you're talking bells, smells, pews, steeples. I mean, you're talking everything, priestly garments. And, and you've got always in the back uh, a crucifix. The difference between a crucifix and a cross is Jesus is still on the crucifix. And so you see him up there. And I, I mean, you can imagine if you've ever been to a church like that. And I was 13, 14 years old. And I remember looking at it going, I don't know what this is all about, but it looks serious. Like, that's all it looks like. I mean, I don't know. And I remember hearing things like Jesus died for sinners, and Jesus is Lord, and Christ was crucified, and I'm like, you know, Pontius Pilate, I'm like, I don't know what all this means. You know, I needed somebody. It's almost like I, I had all the pieces of the puzzle, but no one helped me put the puzzle together. Until Joe came around, Joe was in my high school, and I was in a, I mean, I was in a public high school in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And Joe had had his life changed by Jesus. And Joe came up to me and started talking to me about Jesus the way I would have talked to him about my parents. And he just took a, he explained to me the cross in such a way that I no longer just saw death there, but I saw life there. He would say, man, do you know that it's your sins that put Jesus on the cross? It's like, oh, wow, I had no idea. Do you know that Jesus didn't just die for everybody? Jesus died for you. And it's when you understand the cross becomes unbelievably personal. The only way I can describe it is it goes from being black and white to color, to HD, to 4K. And I remember having this emotional experience of man, Christ died for me. I mean, when you look at the cross and you look at the empty tomb, you should understand them as an invitation, an invitation to life. When I, when I think about them, so here, here's the thing. We look at the story today, right? Here, what happened in the story? The first thing that happens is the women go into the empty tomb right after they experienced the cross, and it says they were perplexed. I think today, when we look at the cross, we should be perplexed. And here's what we should ask. Man, I cannot believe God would die for me. You know, when you look at the cross, you should see two things. When you look at the cross, you should see, I'm a lot worse than I thought. The, the, everything that I've been pursuing, all the places I've been looking for life, this is where it leads. It leads to death. And the, that my sin is so terrible that God had to send his only son to die in my place. When you look at the cross, remember this, you're worse than you think. Your conditions, in, uh, you're in more dire straits than you know. But then also when you look at the cross, you gotta say this, but God loves me more than I could imagine. Because look... <laughs> When we're looking for all these different things, what are we looking for in a relationship? We're looking to be known and we're looking to be loved. Some of us have the experience of, I, I've been known and I ain't been loved because I've been known. And other, you know, that's painful and hurtful. Others of us have been loved, but we've not been known. And we kind of know that's shallow. They don't really know me. In Christ, you can be known and you can be loved. So this Easter, have you been perplexed and moved emotionally by the cross? Secondly, can God ask you a question? That's how you have a relationship with someone. You cannot have a relationship with someone who can't ask you a question. So if you wanna know, do I have a relationship with God? Not just do I go to church, not am I a good person? Do I have a relationship with God? Can he ask you questions? And maybe the number one question he wants to ask you today is why have you been looking for life in things that you know only lead to death. He wants to say, money can't satisfy you, I can make greater promises. That there's an intimacy and acceptance in a relationship with me that you will never find in any other relationship. This is why the Bible says marriage is just a pointer and parable and picture of our relationship with Christ. Even the most intimate relationship on earth points us to Christ. Maybe he's saying today, would you focus less on your body and more on your soul? Would you focus less on physical pleasure and more on spiritual pleasure? And if you'll bow your heads, close your eyes, I just wanna give us a chance, I feel like I'd be remiss to not give us a chance in this moment to respond. Jesus was the great inviter. He said, come and see. He said, follow me. Christianity is an invitation. The Christian faith is full of invitations. And you may ask, how do I become a Christian? And that's a great question. I wanna make it super simple, super straightforward. How does a person become a Christian? Well, there's three things you have to do. The first thing you have to do is you have to admit. Admit two things. You are a sinner and you need a savior. You're not a mistaker. You are a sinner and you need to think, I, yes, I know sinful things that I do and I need, to, I need Jesus to be my savior. A boyfriend can't be my savior. A wife can't be my savior. A kid can't be my savior. A salary can't be my savior. Being in perfect shape can't be my savior. I am a sinner and I need a savior. That's what you need to admit. Secondly, you need to believe. And believe means that you welcome and you embrace and you accept what Jesus has done for you. Faith, uh, belief means that somehow you look to what Jesus did 2000 years ago and you say it counted for me. So that's the first two things. You have to admit it, I'm a sinner who needs a savior. I have to believe and welcome and embrace. But the third thing the Bible says you have to do is confess. The Bible says that Christianity is very, very personal, but never private, and that we should make a public profession of our faith. So I wanna give you an opportunity right now. If you have never trusted Jesus personally, if you've never seen life at the cross, and today you'd say, I want Jesus to save me, I want him to give me eternal life, I wanna find life in him and not in things that lead to death. If you wanna do that for the first time, would you raise your hand high right now? Just put your hand up, I see that hand. Wherever you are across this room, I see that hand. Yes, thank you, I see that hand, thank you. Lord, we pray for these people, Lord. We thank you that people just put their faith in you, Lord. I pray for the rest of this room. I know there's people all over the map. There's people who are afraid to raise their hand. There's people who still have questions. Lord, and then there's just many of us, Lord. I confess myself, the longer I'm a believer, the easier I find in every stage for me to go back and try to find life somewhere else. Would you remind us today that Jesus is alive and he came to give us life and life abundantly. We ask all this in Jesus name.